0: Good evening. Boy, it it is good to see you all. Uh, I'm I'm excited to be here this week. I'm teaching the book of Zechariah in the Bible College and just excited about the new students at Dayspring. And uh, I am the busiest I've ever been, uh, getting invitations just everywhere. And uh, part of that is the profile of this ministry. Part of it raises a profile of this ministry. But it's just amazing. Just this afternoon, I was talking with a preacher about Grace Conference, who's never been here before, planning on coming and bringing three with him. We are trying to figure out the best way to do housing, and and it just stays in amazing fashion. Saturday, I was speaking at a, spoke three times at a Christian workers conference. And a man I had never met came up and said, would would you sit with me at lunch? I'd like to talk to you. Okay. And and, uh, he brought up, evangelism made simple. Never met him or his pastor. Pastor Scudders never met him or his pastor. But he said that we just love this book. Said we're using it in developing lessons and programs at our church. And he he just wanted to be thankful and let us know he was thankful for that book. And again, I'm talking to people about Grace Conference just all the time, partially because I approach them and some because they approach me. And it's it's just... Exciting to see what's happening and the positive influence we want to have for Christ and the cause of Christ and the impact on it. I was in Australia recently and the dear folks in the church were talking to me about how much they love watching in grace, especially the episodes on creation and how tremendous that is. And I know just in the last few days, they have asked, uh, invited Pastor Scudder to come and preach for them in Australia, and it's an amazing church. It's a Filipino church, but the Filipino folks have been there for a while, and they all speak Australian. I mean, it, it just I have trouble not laughing. I'm just watching them, and I go to the Philippines twice a year. I spend a lot of time talking to Filipinos, and I'm used to their accent and their expressions and all that, and I'm watching these Filipinos, and coming out of their mouth is Australian. You know bloke and mate and and all that it just it tickles me, but uh they're impacted by the, that church is impacted by the television ministry it's just such an exciting thing uh to be part of and to watch what the lord is doing and uh again it's just been incredible the the opportunities that that the Lord raises up. I just got a call from somebody a few weeks ago or a few days ago and uh Wanted me to come and do a conference at their church. And I said, I just don't have anything free. I'm totally booked for a year and a half. And they said, do you ever drive through Indianapolis on your way to a meeting? you ever drive through Indianapolis on Saturday? So well, yes, I've got They said, we'll have a conference coming on Friday. We'll have a conference all day Saturday. And I'm scheduled to be there in a few weeks. Uh, it's just amazing what God's doing and we're thankful for it, but we love being here. We love being at the church and, and, um, uh, the people here and what this ministry stands for. And I think about it often because Dr. Scudder senior was my friend before I was ever here. And, and we were friends as fellow pastors and and had many conversations where we talked very candidly about things and, um, Sometimes having conversations with him very candidly, we're also very humorous. But uh, I believe he would be real pleased with, with what's happening with his legacy, and it's just exciting. Well, good to be with y'all. Second Chronicles chapter thirty three. It, it we're talking about Manasseh the king. And if you're reading books on Old Testament history or whatever, they will tell you Manasseh was the worst king Judah ever had. And I think I was aware of that for a long time before I was really conscious of the rest of the story. And we want to talk about that, but the rest of the story as well. And you look right there at Manasseh, or in Second Chronicles chapter 33 and verse 1. The very first thing you find out, Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign. He reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. He inherited the throne, the death of his father, Hezekiah, when he was 12 years old. Man, that'd be kind of frightening, having a 12-year-old king. I'm fearful that kind of power and that kind of a setting could be corrupting to anybody. Then, crap, Josiah, who becomes king even younger, but I'm afraid the average 12-year-old, I don't know how much experience y'all have working with junior high folks, but a fellow wrote a book one time, and he said, if you can control a junior high Sunday school class, you're qualified to be emperor of the world. (laughs) And I understand that. I understand that years of youth work, and I also kind of understand that from remembering what I was like when I was in junior high. Manasseh was 12 years old. When he began to reign, he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. And he is corrupted by the circumstances, the setting, the growth of paganism in the country, the power. It says, but he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord, likened to the abominations of the heathen whom the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. He saw the sin, the ungodliness, of the pagan nations around. And rather than seeing it and being horrified and thinking, this is why God expelled the pagan nations from Canaan. He looked at it and he was attracted by it. <laughs> Bible's pretty clear and reality's pretty clear. There is pleasure in sin for a season. Sin can be made to look pretty attractive. And Manasseh is caught up in it, and it was devastating to him. And he began to read the things that he did. Verse 3, for he built again the high places which Hezekiah his father had broken down, and he reared up altars for Balaam and made groves and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. He begins to look at the pagan religions and their practices And his, and his father had run all that out of the land, but he looks at it and he's attracted to it and he begins to set it up. And this is not just being foolish about religion. He set up altars to Baal. Little children got sacrificed at altars to Baal. It was. Baal worship was immorality. And they said they were bringing about the spring by being immoral. And when they're immoral cultures, you can count on a lot of unwanted pregnancies. And offering the baby, newborn babies, on the altars of Baal was their form of keeping the population under control. Literally, when they had found statues of Baal, the statues are with arms outstretched. And they put the little babies in the arms and the fire would be kindled underneath and right at the statue. Would, the altar would be right at the statue and, and uh, it's horrible. It's as horrible as it could be. And then worse. Also, he built altars in the house of the Lord. Where the Lord had said, in Jerusalem shall my name be forever. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord actually went in and built these altars where these horrible things take place in the very temple of God itself. In the place set aside for worshiping the Lord and honoring the Lord. And and, uh, every part of that was evil and wicked. Even more so, verse six, they caused his children to pass through the fire in the valley of the son of Hinnom. Outside the city, the Valley of Hinnom, and there was a place routinely associated with with pagan altars and pagan sacrifice. His own children he offered in pagan sacrifices. I just don't know how you get more degraded than that, more evil than that, more wicked than that. no wonder... He's remembered in the history books as the worst king that Judah ever had. Beyond that. Also, he observed times and used enchantments and used witchcraft, dealt with a familiar spirit and with wizards. He wrought much evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. He practiced all forms of the occult, even to the point of dealing directly with a demon, and and you can imagine somebody engaged in all this being demon-influenced and demon-possessed, but even to the point that the Bible would call some demons a familiar spirit because those demons would come to a person and come again and come again until people actually became familiar with them. I have talked with people and counseled with people who had familiar spirits Demons that they learn to recognize and, and, and know by name and be become literally familiar with. Hezekiah had that. And he keeps going on. He says, and he said a carved image, verse 7, the idol which he had made in the house of God, of which God had said to David and to Solomon, his son, in this house and in Jerusalem, which I have chosen before all the tribes of Israel, will I put my name? Forever, In in the very house of God, he installed a pagan god. So that when people went to the temple, they were not worshiping Jehovah. They were worshiping a pagan god with whatever went with the worship of that particular idol. God had said, neither will I anymore remove the feet of Israel from out of the land which I have appointed for your father's so that they will take heed to do all that I have commanded them, according to thy whole law and the statutes and the ordinances by hand of Moses. God said, the temple was here to guide people in the Mosaic law and the proper worship of the Lord. And now when they go to the temple, they find a pagan god seated in the temple as the object of worship. Verse 9. So Manasseh made Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to Er err and to do worse than the heathen whom the Lord had destroyed before the children of Israel. You find this all through the prophets, the warning of God. If you're going to live like the pagans that God has expelled from the land, what do you think God is going to do to you? In... uh, Last week of November, first week of December, I'll be teaching the book of Jeremiah to college. It is a longer book. It's not normally taught in Bible colleges. Uh, And and one of the things I've just set as a goal is to have the book of Jeremiah this year, Ezekiel next year, Isaiah the year after that, and have that in our library of classes. Uh, Those books ought not to be ignored because they're long. And so I've been reading and studying Never had a class on Jeremiah. Never taught Jeremiah in all my years in Bible college. And uh, I knew this, but I never got it at this level. Jeremiah pre- is sermon after sermon preached by Jeremiah. And the sermons are almost all the same. If you're going to engage in this kind of ungodliness, do you think God will tolerate out of you what he would not tolerate out of the Canaanites. Do you think there will be no price tag. For this kind of ungodliness. There will be no price tag for sin. And and the Jeremiah is remembered as the weeping prophet. Because he's preaching the judgment of God. To these people. And he constantly breaks down weeping and in tears. To his country. His people. He loves his country and his people. He doesn't want to see this happen to them. And yet he knows nobody ever mocks God and gets by. He knows the judgment is inevitable and he weeps over it. It seems like he's saying the same thing over and again, over and over again. God's giving them again and again a chance to repent. We see here verse 10. And the Lord spoke to Manasseh and to his people, but they would not hearken. Say again, again, he warned them. Verse 11, wherefore the Lord brought upon them the captains of the host of the king of Assyria, which took Manasseh among the thorns. That was a form of very painful punishment. They took Manasseh among the thorns and carried him to Babylon. They carried him and and just sort of dumped him in Babylon, maybe sold him to the Babylonians. And and they dumped him there. And now, after he's been king since age 12, he's just a prisoner. He's in some sort of Babylonian confinement. And the Bible calls it being in affliction. It says when he was in affliction, I got the feeling being in a Babylonian prison wasn't any fun the United States, prisoners have rights. And I'm certainly not saying being in a prison is a good thing. I have preached in prisons several places in the United States. But I'm going to tell you, I have preached in prisons in other countries. And it's far beyond the level of punishment and, and horror that exists in the United States. I've been in some places preaching to prisoners, looking at how they live, Look at what their circumstances are, and just cannot imagine how terrible that is. The level of filth, I preached in a prison in Philippines one time, and the cells were so small, they'd have four men in a cell, but the cell was so small, no more than two of them could lay down at one time. And when they did lay down, they were laying on a concrete floor. And the stench of the cell, you picked up a long time away. I don't know what prison was like in Babylon, but I got the idea it wasn't a very pleasant experience. And he he was in affliction, it says. Here's a part of the story doesn't get told as often, verse 12. When he was in affliction, he besought the Lord his God and humbled himself greatly before the God of his fathers. He came to a moment when instead of staying hardened in his sin, he humbled himself, prayed to God. Verse 13, prayed unto him and was entreated of him. And guess what God did when Manasseh came to him? He heard his supplication. I'm thinking about heaven, and I'm thinking of the great heroes of the faith, great men of God that I have known. (laughs) It goes with my age. But every year I have another preacher that I'm close to and respect and admire that is with the Lord, and I'm thinking about heaven and all those folks in heaven. I I preached Sunday for Alan Farmer. Uh, If you were at graduation this year, we gave Alan Farmer Gradu, uh, a doctor, honorary doctorate graduation because he took a small country church um, while he was a Bible college student, we were college students together a huh, long time ago, and um, he has stayed in that ministry for fifty years that 's an incredible story that 's incredible testimony and they had his anniversary service and, and I was preaching at it and, and we were sitting at lunch just talking about. This preacher that we both knew, and this preacher we both knew, and this preacher we both knew, and this preacher that we both knew, with the Lord now, wondering when folks are going to be talking about us that way, but I mean, that that's the program and that's how it works, but here he was, I've thought about heaven, I'm always thinking about these great men of God that I'll visit with again in heaven or great men from history that I'll meet and get acquainted with there might just be some people in heaven that would surprise you. Because one of the folks I'm going to meet in heaven is Manasseh. His name isn't what comes to mind so quickly. And yet when he turned to the Lord, the Lord heard him. Man, isn't that a great truth? I remember talking to somebody one time and talking to him about getting saved. And he said, no, he said, I can't do that. He said, the Lord is finished with me. He won't listen to me anymore. I said, you're wrong. He said, how do you know I'm wrong? I said, because you're breathing. As long as you're breathing, you're in the category of people that the Lord would deal with if you put your faith and trust in him. And I have known some folks over the years who got saved after ungodly lives, near the end. But glory to God, this message, when will the Lord save us? And the answer is, if you're still living, it's not too late. Manessa, I think heaven's gonna be an interesting place. I have my own mind about things I wanna do in heaven, and that may be... Meaningless. It may not be what we do. I don't know. This isn't Bible. This is Phil. But but this is one of the things I want to do in heaven. I want to take my dad and stand him right here and have next to him the pastor I that I saw lead my father to Christ. Okay. I don't know that much about how he got saved. He's one of the godliest men I ever knew. But I know he got saved in prison. They told us that, which meant somebody had a soul-winning ministry in prison. And I'd like to stand the person who is responsible for reaching him for Christ in prison next to him. Then I'd like to find the person that reached them. I don't know, preacher, godly mother, youth worker. I have no idea who it would be. But then I'd like to get the person that reached them. And then get the person that reached them. They say, how far back do you want to go? About the time of the apostles? It <laughs> can be fascinating. I get thrilled anytime I hear the story of how somebody found Christ. We're going to have millions and I hope billions of people with a story about how they found Christ. And plenty of time. I don't know that God lets us do that. I'm just telling you what's in my mind. We, we might meet some folks in heaven that would dramatically surprise us. After he turned to the Lord, the Lord heard his supplication and, and it says, and brought him again to Jerusalem into his kingdom. Got the God moved on the heart of the Babylonians to send him back, make him king again. Then Manasseh knew that the Lord he was God. That was great. Turns to Jerusalem. Goes on and tells about he 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 tries to tear down all the paganism he had supported. He restarts the sacrifices of Jehovah. He tries to call the people back to God. Some of the people listen, some won't. They're still attracted to the allure of ungodly paganism. His own son does not follow his godly ways and goes into paganism but his grandson is godly Josiah. Then we say, well, your own son didn't get the message, it failed, I'm glad his grandson got the message. I'm glad his grandson could see what God did in Manasseh's life. But there were in heaven millions or billions of people to meet, there might be some interesting stories. And over the years, being a history teacher as well as a preacher, I've come across some that just absolutely fascinate me. Henry VIII, reading about him in the classic books on the Reformation in England. Henry VIII's remembered as a pretty rough guy. They say that when Henry VIII lost his temper, somebody died. He's remembered for six wives, divorcing his first wife, unjustly accusing his second wife and executing her. Third wife died a natural death. He divorced the fourth wife, executed the fifth wife, this time for something she actually did. She committed adultery, but that was something he did routinely. Folks don't tell the story as often of Henry VIII's sixth wife. After years living in debauchery and ungodliness, ill, has several sexually transmitted diseases, other diseases, physically suffering. He calls in government officials and says that he wants to marry a godly woman. And they're assigned to find a godly woman. And so there was some consternation about how to be sure to do that. But they came up with the name of a woman. She had been married to a general in Henry's armies who'd been killed in combat. But people had sung her praises as a godly wife. Then she'd been married to an admiral in the English Navy who had been killed in combat. But he'd sung the praises of his wife as a godly woman. They said, well, this woman's been married twice. She was a godly wife to both of those people. And in... in that culture, you were not asked, do you want to marry the king? She's, she's summoned and brought. and She's now the sixth wife of Henry VIII. <laughs> that must have been an imposing thought. After he executed the second wife that he executed, he had proposed to a princess in Denmark, and she declined. And wrote a letter that said, if she only had two heads one of them would be at the disposal of King Henry. But since she only had one, she thought she would stay in Denmark. But this woman, who was his third wife named Catherine, knew the Lord and was well known for her involvement in a Bible, among Bible preaching people and gospel people. And she actually stayed in the palace, which queens didn't normally do, and helped to physically take care of Henry. Was one of the people who cared for him and his illnesses. But she was also known for writing out Bible verses about salvation from the band Tyndale Bible. Henry's responsible for Tyndale's death indirectly. She was known for writing out Bible verses And handing them to people in the hallways of the palace. Sort of the way you and I would give people gospel tracts. And it made, she was handing Bible verses to leaders in the Church of England who did not believe or preach the gospel, but they were religious leaders. And she's giving them verses about salvation. And it made some of them angry. And they went and complained to Henry. Henry called them all together, called Catherine in and told her it did not look right for her to be doing that in the hallways. But if she had something she wanted to say to them, they were all together now and she could say anything she wanted to. And and believe me, nobody tried to get up and leave. And so she gave the gospel to the assembled leadership of the Church of England Later, it's recorded history of the Reformation. England. She sat at Henry VIII's bedside, holding his hand, reading to him from Tyndale's Bible. That Henry was responsible for Tyndale being killed over. She gave him the gospel from the Tyndale Bible, and he put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And testified to it repeatedly the last few days of his life. By the way, right before Tyndale gets burned at the stake for translating the Bible, his last words were, Lord, open the king of England's eyes. And Catherine leads Henry to Christ from a Tyndale Bible. I'd say that's a pretty good answer to that prayer. Henry would die a few days later. But it would be interesting. Among the teeming millions of people in heaven, one day we might meet Henry VIII because he trusted Christ before he died. Might be some folks in heaven surprise us. Simon Kenton was one of the great heroes of the Kentucky frontier during the Boone era. In his lifetime, he was more famous than Daniel Boone was. Said so, a very powerful man, six foot five, huge man, famous as a you know perpetual warfare with the Shawnee Indians. One point the Shawnee Indians had him and they had a custom called running the gauntlet where they would line all the men in the village up from the youngest, from boys to teens to men, line them up by age on either side. And they would make a prisoner run between the two lines. And they would beat with clubs and axe hatchets and whatever they chose. They would beat on the prisoner as he was running through. And almost always the person died. Fact in recorded history, the frontier of Kentucky, there were only two men who ever ran the gauntlet and lived. Simon Kenton was captured by the Shawnee. He ran the gauntlet nine times and lived. He was so big, he'd grab one of them and throw him over his back. Grab another one and hold him to his chest and run through the gauntlet using them as shields. And it became a big deal and famous and they would make him run the gauntlet again. All kinds of tribes and people would come in to see it. He ran the gauntlet nine times and survived, eventually escaped from the Shawnee, was famous for being a ruffian. In fact, it's interesting, you're looking at the history of of, the War of 1812. There are two generals, Simon Kenton Jr., leading American troops at the same time in different places. That's because he fathered children all over the frontier. And whenever he had a son, he insisted that if you wanted financial support, you had to name the son Simon Kenton Jr. There were at least four Simon Kenton Juniors with four different mothers. He's a character. At one point, he felt he needed to do something for God to make up for sin. So he started protecting churches. Churches often were disrupted, Indian attacks or by border ruffians. And so he would come to church meetings and stand outside and protect the church. One time, some teenagers were throwing rocks through the church window while the preacher was preaching. Ken grabbed two of them, drug them in the church, went forward, threw them down at the altar and told them to get saved. And the preacher had to tell him, said, Simon, that is not how it's done. But then the preacher looked at him and said, Simon, you could get saved at this altar today. He ran out. Sometime later, he went by the Baptist church. The Baptist church was going to have a baptism, and baptisms were often disrupted. They were in the river. He went by to see the Baptist preacher. And told him, said, you don't have to worry about the baptism tomorrow. I will be there. Nobody's going to bother your baptism. And the preacher began to talk to him and tell him about Christ and plead with him to be saved. And Kenton said, I'd like to be saved. But he said, my reputation, my situation, he said, I could not afford to have everybody know that. They'd think I'd become weak. I'd be a target. But he said, I would like to be saved. And then, then he said to the Baptist preacher, "If I got saved, would you promise not to tell anybody?" So the preacher said yes, and Kent entrusted Christ as his savior, and then went off to local tavern. I don't think he planned it, but he started out by telling everybody he was going to be at the baptism tomorrow, and then he broke down and started telling people he got saved. So people assumed he was gonna be baptized the next day because he was guess got saved, he was gonna be at the baptism. And the word spread all over the area that Simon Kenton was getting baptized. And hundreds of people showed up the next day to see Simon Kenton get baptized. And he's scratching his head not knowing what to do. And the preacher said, there's a solution for this. We'll baptize you. He got baptized. The stories were told about the change in him All over Frontier. Interestingly enough, in his later years, two of the Shawnee war chiefs that had held him captive had become Christians, and they lived with him in the same cabin. Brothers in Christ. Stories told one night a mob came, remembering the days of warfare and all the horrible things that happened, and they said they were going to hang those two Shawnee chiefs. And Kenton was sitting, famous warrior that he was, he's sitting in a rocking chair on the front porch, Saying, you know, guys, there's so many of you. I'm pretty sure you can do anything you want to. But he said, the one thing I know is the first person that steps on the porch gets shot and killed. So after that, pretty much whatever happens that you want. He said, the one thing I'm wondering is who wants to be first. They chose not to. Simon Kenton, for all the stories about what a ruffian and a prolificate ungodly man he was. We're gonna have a chance to get acquainted with in heaven. Might be some people would surprise you. Geronimo, famous Indian chief, Apache. His great claim to fame was his ability to sneak up on people and slit their throat before anybody knew they were there. People around the frontier were terrified at the idea that Geronimo would get to them. Became very famous. That people didn't want to do guard duty anywhere by themselves. So you're by yourself. You'd be dead for, you knew what happened to you. Geronimo was there. Years went on. He finally gets captured. And he gets sent to a prison in St. Augustine, Florida. And he, he would eventually dictate his autobiography to somebody. And I have it and it's fascinating. He's telling the story through his battles and so forth. Get the last chapter. The last chapter is about him getting saved. Becoming a Christian. And and I went looking for that biography, autobiography. when Because when I, I visited the jail where he was held. And they had a flyer from back in the days when he was there. And he was Christian by the time he, he shipped to prison. And um, he was in Oklahoma for a while. By the time they shifted him to Florida, he got saved. And he became such a trusted inmate, they would let him leave on Saturdays and come back on Monday. And what he would do when he left, people from a church would come pick him up. They would take him. They would have him at church on Sunday. And Geronimo would give his testimony about being saved. And big crowds would come because it was Geronimo. It's not, you can read a lot of history books and they'll never tell you that. But I saw a flyer from that era. They said Geronimo's giving his testimony tomorrow. Everybody be at church. So for we have a dinner on the grounds afterward and all that. And they mentioned his autobiography, which I found and ordered. And there it was, man. Someday in heaven, he just might meet Geronimo. Because you know who this gospel saves? Anybody that puts their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Boy, heaven could be an interesting place. Seeing all what God's done. And, And then, of course, there was a guy called Saul of Tarsus. Who described himself as the chiefest of sinners. At one point in his life, he is responsible for Christians being taken and beaten and jailed, and killed in an atmosphere of self-righteousness. He thought he was doing something great for God by killing Christians. And then, of course, he got saved. Came Paul the apostle. If all you knew was about his years as Saul of Tarsus. You might not expect to see him in heaven, but it ain't gonna be something to get to know Paul in heaven. Glory to God. We might come across some people in heaven that would surprise us. Who knows how many more? I had a chance to preach in Cambodia one time. Twenty, There are 50 of Paul Potts mass murderers present. 25 of them professed faith. I hope they understood and really got saved. it would be something to see some of them in heaven. Glory to God, and this is a tremendous truth. Anybody put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. The issue is not their sin. Their sin was paid for on the cross. Anybody who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ can find Christ as their savior and look forward to an eternal home in heaven where the redeemed rejoice in what God has done for them. By the way, anybody here tonight, never put your faith and trust what Christ did on the cross. You could have Christ as your savior before you leave this very night. Because you know who this message is for. <laughs> Glory to God is for Manessa. It's for Henry the Eighth. It's for Simon Ketton. It's for Geronimo. It's for Saul of Tarsus. And it's for me. And it's for you. If you never trusted Christ as your Savior, you ought to trust him tonight. I'll say one more thing and turn the service over to Brother Mark. Don't ever give up on anybody. If they're breathing, they're a candidate to know Christ. Brother Mark.